Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Logic and Larry podcast. I am your host, Larry K. As you know, everything I say on this podcast is strictly my opinion as a private citizen speaking to you in a private capacity. Nothing I say in any way reflects uh, the opinion of any other person or any other entity. I am not speaking to you in an official capacity, but only as a personal private citizen expressing personal private opinions on matters of public interests. Now, there's a lot of news going on in the world today, as you know. There's a lot of strife, a lot of things that we can touch on, and I'll get to another news update soon on Logic and Larry. But today, I have a very special guest for you. It's an individual who's a very dear friend of mine um, and who has just released a really profound piece of art and creativity, and I want him to be able to discuss that. And I think in times like this, when you know there's so much uncertainty in the world, politically, overseas, domestically, uh, all the problems we're facing, which I am constantly telling you guys is just really we're not fixing anything. And we're constantly, you know, in this endless cycle. I think an individual, uh, an artist like this who's expressing and speaking from a place of not only reason, but deep emotion and also with an eye. And that's key toward the state of the world and society. I think it's a great time to touch base with somebody like this. And it's a great time for this art. So I wanted to bring you an interview exclusively here on the Logic and Larry podcast uh, with my dear friend, Elliot Fant, uh, to discuss his latest work. And uh, that's what I've got for you today. So I hope everybody enjoys it. And Elliot, welcome back to the show, my brother. You know, what's going on, man? How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. And it's great to have you back on the show. Last time we were live and the people got to hear a little bit about you and what was what you had percolating. But now it's out, man. Uh, the world yeah. as I see it, man. <laughs> so yeah, that time we were talking about getting ready for the release, and then I hit a uh, I hit a hiccup with the uh, with the print uh, distribution company that was printing the book. I got you know it's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of things in regards um, to COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, once COVID happened, people who were trying to put books out, if they were trying to do their book in a particular kind of way, it really affected affected the ability or it drove up the price point number one and made those kind of books like hardcover books, color bound books, way more expensive than what they had been prior to COVID. So right. I lost a little bit of time because of that. Makes sense, but it's out now, man. And, and, you know, I, I know most people who are regular listeners to my show already heard you, you know, come on before and they just know you in general and who you are. But for those who don't know, bro, why don't you just give us a quick, you know, little synopsis of, of your biography, where you're coming from and and what might have shaped your perspective before we get into the art? Oh, man. Well, uh, you know, uh, born in North New Jersey, um, Beth Israel Hospital, grew up all over Essex County, lived pretty much every uh northern city in the state, you know, from the time mm. I was a kid to now. Um, bounced around a lot. Got a chance to meet a whole lot of, you know, different kind of people um, through elementary school, high school, college. Went to the military, uh, U.S. Navy, 2004. Um, I came back uh, from the Navy, and then that's when I attended school at Keene University in Union. Um, graduated there. 2011 and that next year is when i published my first book um the execution of revolution which was a small paperback 
um, just me getting my feet wet in writing and then also proving that I could, you know, finish something that, that I had an ambition to start. Um, the following year after that, 2013, I released my second book, um, The Long Way Home. So those two books early on. Got me testing the waters and trying to grow as a writer, grow as a poet. Um, and they actually did pretty well. My life was uh, shit at that time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about you know, cussing on the... Uh, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It's yeah, okay. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> you don't got no other words for, for what is actually going on other than to say what, what it is. And that's what right. my life was. So in now... Yeah. Right. So now, look, we we met and I'm not going to delve into the details of it, but we met because we were at a, a, a social event and we had a good conversation going with multiple people. And I think one of the things, you know, a that this show is about and b that we connected on very early was, you know, the idea of just rational reason and, you know, abstract objective thought. I think we kind of shared that ability to not go with the crowd and to look at things critically and logically. And before we delve into the book itself, you know, I kind of want to set the stage because it relates to this show and what people listen for. I mean, in a world right now, and we'll get into some recent events and things that happen locally, but in, in a world right now where so many people are engaged in groupthink and there's so much anger and emotion and everything, you know, how important do you think thinking reasonably and rationally in ways that might transcend race, might transcend um, gender, might transcend things like that. How important is that? And, and, and how much are we lacking that in society, in your opinion? I mean, we're lacking it at a, at a level um, that we haven't seen ever. I think it's unprecedented to the level that we lack um, context. Mm -hmm. I always say that in a soundbite, you know, video clip type world, mm -hmm. which is what we exist in, you need to you need to have context and details. And within context and details, that's where most truth reveals itself. Good point. It's easy to look at things from a black and white lens, but life is great. Yes. And I don't, I, you know, unless, and then another thing is don't speak, you know, with so much passion about things that you aren't directly in the middle of that, you know, so much of what we do is we take things we see on television, things we hear on radio and we just delve into it emotionally. There's no context. Mm -hmm. There's bias. Mm -hmm. You know, bias to the maximum level because we see ourselves or things that happen remind us of something that we went through. Just like when, you know, a woman will talk about, oh, man, ain't da, 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 da. and what, what it really is, she hasn't met every man in, <laughs> in the right. right to be able to, you know, but she had a couple bad relationships. And she hasn't reconciled with the hurt of those relationships. So now everybody's paying for it. Yes. And the emotional bit of that is is why we all suffer on both sides. Yeah, I think about anything we talk about. 
You're right. And I, and I would say, you know, because we're constantly, you know, and, and some of your poetry reflects this and also, you know, you're just general commentary, you know, and, and you and I both obviously utilize this tool, which is the Internet and social media, you know, to get the right words out and to market ourselves. We are not immune from that. That is the world we live in. But what role do you think kind of the Internet culture that we have now? And, and this is because you came out with a hardcover book now. I volunteer with the library. You have a hardcover book. It's selling. You know, what role does this Internet headline culture play you know, and, and as opposed to a hardcover book that gives more depth. I mean, how much of our problems in society with this black and white soundbite culture is related to this social media Internet culture? Well, it's always easier to speak whatever you speak when you don't have to look who you're talking about in the eye. Mm. So if you're asking me, it promotes a lot of cowardly narrative, mm-hmm. cowardly rhetoric, people are a lot more rude. But yeah. it's easy to be rude when there's no uh, consequence, <laughs> you know, other than somebody unfriending you. 100%. Or, you know, so that's what you get is you get a lot of people who are cowardly, who hide behind the keyboard, you know, when it comes to issues of divisiveness, you know. Yes, yes. Um. I, I've always looked at uh, somebody not seeing something the way I see it as an opportunity to learn, but to acquire that, you know, that kind of perspective about it, man, you know, you really have to be mature and you have to be grounded. But I think now, I think a lot of people just want to feel like a lot of conversations aren't even about what we're actually talking about. It's about proving some kind of intellectual point like Barmach. You know, my yes. my viewpoint is smarter than your viewpoint. I made a point that and I'm smarter than you. Like it's, not, it's not about learning from each other. It's about trying to, I guess, put put the other person in check. Yes. You know, yeah. No, thinking. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I and when you're and when you're coming from that kind of, you know, with that kind of energy in a conversation, the conversation is like three quarters of the way dead before it even starts. Good point. And I and I mean. I think people in general, and I think you would agree, they kind of come at conversations like you just said, not with an eye towards learning and and educating each other, but just trying to win an argument or trying to basically just use it as a as a soundboard to vent rather than have a conversation. You know, I think it's a problem. If you already made your decision internally about whatever it is you're talking about, then why even have the conversation other than to assert your point? Right. If you already got, if you, if you okay, I'm I'm inflexible. You're gonna be inflexible. Then right. to me, it's 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 a it's a baseless, bottomless pit of a thing. But people embark on that every day with conversations that you know we know the outcomes to, but we still have them. <laughs> you know, so yeah. yeah. Why do you think we have them? Like I do it, you do it. Why, why do you think? We've done it less recently, I think, but you and I have both done it. Now, you and I engage in the conversations when they mean something. We'll we'll talk deep about sports. We'll talk deep about race. We'll talk. We'll do it in person too. I mean, we will. We have called each other when we're on the internet, and we have made a phone call and had the conversation on the phone. But why do you think you and I, or people in general, why do we still engage in those internet conversations? What sometimes with me, it just pushes me over the edge. I gotta respond, even though I know it's not productive. Why do we do yeah. it? Why do we do it? That what you just said. Sometimes you see you see something. What it is a horrible feeling 
to feel like somebody who's making some uh, uh, an irresponsible comment gets to have that comment and that perspective flourish when you are seeing it and you know better. That's it's very hard. <laughs> Not, that's like you great see somebody making some kind of irresponsible comment. Yes, that is swaying. Yes, or arousing the passions or the thoughts of of other people, or it's misinforming people and people actually kind of believing it a little bit. And you know, and like you know when something like as far as opinions and perspectives, some things. Okay, I can have an opinion, you have your opinion, and neither one of us are correct yeah. or incorrect. And some things <laughs> people are are way off base. Yes. And you and you know it as somebody observing it. Yes. And it becomes very hard to let that stand because you, you feel like, nah, you're misinforming people and you're you're pushing things to a level that is dangerous, you know, for everybody. That's a, and great a lot of people point. do that. And that, that, I mean, that would be one reason, you know, why no, I think you're right. I, I mean, say, you know what? No, yeah. I got to step in here and, and say this. I think you're 100 percent right. I think it's and that's the social media thing that does it right, because you see other people liking it. You see other people co-signing it. You know, it's misinformation. And I always say, you know, you're entitled to your own opinions. 100 percent. You're not entitled to your own facts. And people don't understand that where it's like we can disagree on the taste whether, you know, steak tastes good or doesn't taste good. That's an opinion, right? But it comes from a cow. That's a fact. Like, you can't tell me it came from a goat. You know, like, people, yeah. like, you know, we, we could disagree about whether the night sky or the blue sky is is more pleasant. But the daytime sky is blue and the nighttime sky is dark, and that's how it is. But I, I think you're 100% right. That is definitely what makes me have to respond, even though I, I know better. So I went I, through that last yeah. week. I went through it last week. Exactly. It was just, it's this thing's been kind of filtering around and it's mm -hmm. really talking about uh, 50 50 on bills. And mm -hmm. if a man is a man, if he, if he, if the woman that he's with helps him pay bills, is he, and there's women who <laughs> I've seen it eating this, eating this up. I've seen it, bro. You know, yeah. and, and trying to create some like, but then my thing is if, if you're a man and you do pay all the bills, is the woman then supposed to just shut the hell up and not have an opinion? Because that, that's typically what's going to happen if you're living right. with me for free and I'm doing everything. Right. But then yes. would a woman be okay with that? And a lot of women would sit there and try to front and lie and say, oh, if he pays all the bills, I'll just shut up and not. Yeah, right. You're not. <laughs> you know, you know so, that's, that's a good, yeah. because sometimes I say too, like not every, and I'm not, and I, I'm not trying in any way, and I know you're not, we're not trying in any way say that, you know, we're trying to go backwards or we're anti-feminist or anything. But what I'm saying is with not just gender issues, but a lot of issues, it seems like, you know, people want to consistently use this word progress and forward moving and enlightened. But sometimes moving forward has other consequences that people don't love. And it's kind of interesting, you know, that like we always feel like we had to we have to adhere to this all encompassing intersectional progress, quote unquote. But there's a lot more complexity to it. Like you said, the world is gray and that's part of the grayness. You know, people don't want to grapple with the other shoe. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly how I was feeling in that conversation. I'm like, listen, like cause the, what, what sparked it was number one, she, you know, this one of my friends on. She came 
into my <laughs> inbox mm-hmm. with all of this garbage. I'm like, I'm like, all right, now I gotta address it. Yes, well, in your so, inbox, so, you got it, yes. Yeah, yeah, because you're not going to sit here, like, because everything, every situation is insane. There, there are women who work hard and make their own money, and a man will see that and be more incentivized and inclined to then take care of her because she, he knows, he witnessed her being responsible enough to do it for herself. That's right. different than, uh, I see you, you got two kids prior to us meeting each other. We meet each other. You're living in your mom's house. Yes. Then you see me and my life is together. I don't have any kids. I have a car. I have mm-hmm. a nice place. And then you just want to come and just bring your kid and just, you know, and think you're going to throw sex at me. And then all of a sudden now I got to take, now I'm the, the kid's stepdad and then I got to take, no, no, no. It's different. Well, let's, let's drill down on that really quick, just really quick. So people can establish kind of, you know, who you are and who we are, you know, in this modern society, you are around the same age as me. You know, you have a solid job. You have done well for yourself. You don't have any kids. I don't have any kids. You know, how, how difficult was that? And, And like, what does it say about people like us that we were able to maintain that level of responsibility and try to do the right thing in the right way, even though maybe we didn't come from the most together, stable, you know, family environments. We are we are hell bent on not, you know, getting into that chaotic thing ourselves. What is it? Why does certain people not get drawn into that? I know people with multiple kids, this and that, and we don't have any. We never got in there. I've never been married. You know, none of that. And I'm not because I'm anti-marriage. I just never found the right one. And I want to make sure I do before I do you know, take a plunge. Well, what is that? We, I, I was having a conversation uh, with a person who rents out my room space in my loft last mm-hmm. night mm-hmm. about this very thing. Teaching kids. I, on a daily basis, I see kids who, who I'm responsible for teaching. Yes. They're undisciplined. Mm-hmm. And you could tell that there's... You can call it fear. You can call it respect. But when I was a kid, I know, you know, when I got to 14, 15 years old, my grandmother who raised me mm-hmm. couldn't whoop my ass. Right. Yep. But I still had a healthy fear of a principal calling home. Yes. Me too. I had a healthy fear of uh, uh, a progress report, a bad progress report coming, showing up in the mailbox. Even though I know this woman wasn't going to beat the hell out of me, she couldn't. But right. the disappointment, right? You know, and was what I feared. I feared right. disappointing someone who sacrificed a, a, a time in her life that was really meant for leisure. Right. I feared disappointing someone who sacrificed for me that way. That makes sense. To bring it back to why I haven't had kids or gotten married. Really, it was a dice roll because I I mean, I haven't always been responsible every sexual encounter I had. So it's not like I went to a bedroom situation and always wore a condom and always make sure they went to the to the clinic to make sure they didn't have a disease. Got you. I ain't had people bring me, you know, okay, <laughs> before we do this, you got to bring me so I can see that you don't have gonorrhea. So, so it wasn't always like, it was right. a lot of luck. Right. <laughs> because right. In, in moments of, you know, like, and that happens to all of us, 
the responsible thing to do would destroy our it would destroy the moment most times. Yes. If we're always exercising in those situations responsibility, which is saying, damn, you know, you really look good, but I can't I can't have sex with you tonight. I said I need you to go to the to the clinic, uh, <laughs> get me a t- uh, test and then when you show me that, then we can have sex. We're gonna look at you like you're crazy. She's gonna put her clothes on. She's gonna leave. Uh huh. And you probably never see her again. Right. <laughs> so, so right. We, we it's hard for us to exercise responsibility in that way. But in my mind, I always I saw nothing but failed relationships growing up, mm-hmm. all throughout my family. Mm-hmm. The only relationship that was there in my childhood that's did that's still persistent now is uh my uncle, my father's brother. Um, and my aunt Jill, they've been married since 1990. So wow. 73 years. But within that, we're human beings. Yes. My uncle probably screwed up a bunch of times, probably got put out, but they kept their problems in house. Mm. They didn't go, you know, gossiping about what each other didn't do to each other. And that's a lot. That's something we, some things have to be sacred. And we, I mean, we talked about social media a couple minutes ago. Social media. It strips foundationally that away from mostly everyone. You're right. The idea that some things should be sacred. Yeah. We've gotten to a point now where if I don't, if I have a girlfriend, I don't post my girlfriend on my social media pages. Nobody will look at that and say, I'm trying to protect my girlfriend or protect my wife. They'll say, I'm ashamed of my wife. Yep. They'll say, trying to hide it. Even she You're might. trying to hide her. And she yeah. might. And she will buy into that. Yeah. If she didn't already start off believing that. Yeah. It, it's never looked at like I'm protecting you because not everybody who, who puts a hand clap emoji or congratulations or a little heart, you know, thing on your comments, they still may be jealous of you and want your life. Right. And these right. are people that some, that you may call friend or family. So I don't right. want people knowing everything in my personal life to be able to comment, particularly when it comes to who I'm laying in my bed with. You're right. Because not everybody has your, your best interests, you know, but going back to the kids, when you decide to have kids, you're also deciding before you even send them to a school, mm-hmm. you're deciding to be their foremost Educator. Yes. Your first and best educator. And if you don't want to do the work associated with being a foremost educator, your best and most important educator, because if I don't have respect for my parent as a kid, or if they haven't, you know, nurtured that within me, how can I have it for a stranger who's trying to teach me? Good point. Which is what mostly the problem is with a lot of these kids. When they come in here rambunctious, can't sit still, can't, and, and, I already, and the minute I see it, I already know what the home life is like. But the problem, and we're starting to you know, get along racial lines, mm-hmm. is that in black families, if a parent is working two jobs mm-hmm. because they didn't get a college education, because right. their parents let them down. Now you have a generational thing. Yeah, and I want to yeah. I want to hammer into that because I kind of want to get into exactly what you said about, you know, youth and consequence and and your, you know, teaching and I think 
in our urban spaces, in in our black spaces. And I, I actually think the issue societally and generationally does transcend race. But I think the difference is in some of these, you know, urban neighborhoods, you know, you have and it's sad to say and it's a country problem. But you have guns and and weapons and things floating around the same way drugs and cigarettes float around in in white suburban neighborhoods. And I mean, just yesterday, there was a fire drill at at a I don't remember if it was a high school or a middle school. And it was at a school I taught in in, Central High School. I taught there Central High School. And some and a a young teenager gets hit by a bullet. I think it was probably a stray bullet. I don't know. At 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And I mean, this is. You know, Elliot, they might talk about the mass shootings and we have a problem with that. They might talk about all that. But the we have these young people and this isn't new. They made movies about this when we were babies of, of, yes. of just young people killing each other, dying. And then also another young person died in a car accident when they it was a stolen car and the police are chasing them. And, oh. and I mean, in your role, you know, as a as a as a mentor, and I've seen you be a mentor to many young people, and I'm a mentor, but it's a little, I don't want to say it's different, but there's a different aspect to it. You know, you are a uh, a, a young but growing, almost middle-aged, you know, black man who's a mentor to kids. You you come from uh, certain struggles and, and also certain advantages, you know, mm-hmm. and you come from a, an urban environment that we all know is the greater Newark area. I mean, what is to be said and what is going on with – the youth today and the, you know, especially in our urban spaces, wh- what role does consequences in parenting, you know, come into it? What is generationally coming into it and what can we do and what are you seeing out there with, with the youth, especially the black youth and what they're going through these um, days? Well, and I never ever want to make it seem like everybody white had some kind of ra- roses and rainbow existence either. Right. This notion that, you know, every, just because somebody's white, that their childhood, that they could have been getting abused. Yep. Broken down mentally by the, I've, I've, seen, I've had friends who told those stories and they were white. So yep. it's really just, <laughs> I, what I see is this, kind of going back into what I just said. When you have kids, going to work and coming home nine to five is different when you're single versus having kids. But yeah. some parents don't treat it like it's different. Mm. Some parents, they get home, don't do homework with their kids, mm. plop them in front of a television. So now, I always used to say, going back to the Charles Barkley, you know, role model thing, which I agree with this segment of what he said, parents should be role models. Yes. When parents are void of being a role model to their kids, kids look for other heroes. Right. And if those heroes that they look for are preaching irresponsible messages, you mm-hmm. know, for little girls, it could be a Cardi B, it could be a Megan Thee Stallion. Now, mm-hmm. when we were kids, a little a bla- little black girl to hero might have been Little Kim. Yep. And whatever they do, and, and, and a lot of artists like to say, oh, the, the, my, our music isn't for children. But your music also isn't for 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds either. <laughs> True story, right. So your music is for young people. Mm-hmm. H- however you want to section that off, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up in 
and the CD players of young kids in the 90s mm-hmm. or on their iPods in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing that artists try to do by, you know, disassociating themselves from the responsibility when you take millions of dollars from kids and adults, line your pockets with it, with your art form, but then you don't, you don't say, you don't go out of your way to say, listen, to all the young people who listen to my music, it really is not for you to be listening to. Right. And you need to understand that just because you see me doing this or you right. hear me talking this way on this song, you can be much better than me. And you should, you know, preach better messages, you know, or figure out how to make better and long lasting impacts beyond what I've done as a, as a musician, you know, entertainer or whatever. You don't hear a lot of artists. And and I don't like when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. artists, you know, they soaked up all the limelight, but it was only a few that really wanted the responsibility of preaching a different kind. Tupac was like that early on. Yeah, he early was. Early on. Yeah. Early on. He yeah. would talk about things and he would do it on, you know, afternoon talk shows, Ricky Lake and uh, Donnie, Donnie <laughs> yeah. you, or whatever. You know, he would go, you know, mm-hmm. that started to dwindle where artists would really, really, because a lot of them are young and confused themselves but have all of this power and influence. So that's that's why it's important for for parents to intercede these things and search yourself and be there every single day in your kid's face. Listen, you're going to bed at this time. You're not listening to this. You're not, and and you may be an asshole to you, and you will be. Kid will probably hate you for it. But when they're an adult, they'll look back on that and say, you know what? A lot of my friends ain't have nobody there, and they'll respect you a lot more. That's a like, good point. And, and you're trying to get out of being a parent right. to the maximum level. Other things and other and other influences are going to creep in because and, you're not there. And I, that brings me to something else too. And I think you know this vexes me a lot because I think it's maybe because of me, who I am in the community, what I do, how I look, I think sometimes the nuance of this gets lost. I know it's not lost on you uh, and a lot of other people that are near and dear to me, but you know, you speak about parents and, and being stricter and being there for their kids and taking an active generational role in parenting. And I look at, you know, we talked the other, you know, a few minutes ago about progress and how not all progress, quote unquote, is always fully, you know, advantageous for people and you talk about discipline and 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 I want to you know it's kind of a complicated question but I want to bring this up and you know this this idea of of black power and what we think of that word and phrase and what that means and you know you look back at somebody like a Joe Clark and I know you have some connections to Patterson I have some connections to Patterson and you you see you know what does black power mean do you feel in this current day and age in any way that that term has been co-opted almost by like a, a white patronization or, or, or a leftist patronization. I don't want to put political category on it, but you know, Joe Clark is sometimes looked at now as, and I'm not saying the man didn't have flaws, but looked at as like heavy handed, you know, uh, buying into the culture, the dominant culture, this and that. And, you know, you, you can't 
give too many consequences to kids because it's setting too many expectations that are from the dominant culture, this and that. I mean, as opposed to, hey, there's something to be said for consequences, stability, you know, principals that care, teachers that care, authority figures that care, parents that care. You know, is is there some nuance there and has that meaning of empowerment of black people been co-opted into a almost a patronizing you know, handicapping thing, or, or what's your perspective on all of those things? It's it's funny because most people will call entertainment and what these artists are doing. There's some people who will say, you know what, the freedom that they have to do that, that's right. black power. Right. And if that's the case, then I'm like, then the, then the term has become really, really convoluted. Right. Black power, as I see it, Mm -hmm. when you can step away from earthly possessions, Mm -hmm. money, Mm -hmm. in order to drive home a greater point Mm -hmm. about the respect that you you personally want to have and that you want other people to have for your culture. That's power. Right. What makes it hard now, number one, when you had a Muhammad Ali step away on principle. Right. And say, and the problem of his boxing career is the heavyweight champion of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I know I'm not going to have the championship anymore. I'm going to lose millions of dollars. And then I'm going to have to fight to get back something that really wasn't taken from me. Right. But you know what? I don't care. Right. Then you fast forward to last season, the last two seasons, with somebody like a Kyrie Irving, who I respect. Mm-hmm. But he stood on principle all the way up until game checks started getting taken. Right. He didn't feel like he did anything wrong with what he said. Right. But he still ended up apologizing. Right. Some stances in life that you take, you you shouldn't want to untake. And I don't care what gets taken from you as a result. Do you think that's power in general, removing the black part from it? Right. That's power. Right. But money co-ops that for a lot of people. If somebody, if somebody, money or fear of whatever, you know, but mostly money, possessions, if you are somebody who has something to lose, or better yet, I'll give you this, I'll give you this to think about. If you stood with your, beating your chest saying, I'm a black man and I want respect. And then a white man walks up to you, puts a gun in your head and says, say that again. Mm-hmm. Say that shit one more time. And I'm going to blow your head off. Would you say it again? Mm. The people that we've been taught historically to respect and revere, they made that choice. And that's yeah. why they're legendary. Right. Malcolm X is legendary. 
These people got up and put their pants on, put their socks and shoes on one at a time, and went out into a world where death and the expectation that it can come was very real. We all say, oh, yeah, we, I'm, we might could die today, but I don't think a lot of us believe that. Right. Like, right. I don't think no, a lot we, of us believe, like, today I'm going to die. Like, like, you know, like, yes. they got up in a world where him, Fred Hampton, you go down a list, man. Right. You know, Medgar Evers, in a world where I know I can die today for my beliefs. And I think the separation between that era and that brand of human is way, way different than this brand. of. I think this brand of human talks about, talks a good game about how angry they are. And then when the anger subsides, you go right back to doing what you were doing until the next tragedy happens. And then you get mad all over again and repeat the same process. Yeah, and that, you think that's that's a societal thing now, right? I mean, selective yeah. outrage. Selective and, outrage. And not even knowing the facts of it all either, you know. Yeah. Not let me, you know, observing it from a distance. And let me get into that a little bit too with the, you know, so Kyrie Irving, you know, I'm not gonna go deep into a whole separate conversation. I mean, I don't agree with the content of the film he was quoting, you know, factually, but you know, do you think that you know, he said something and he just said something and all of a sudden they were going to withhold game checks because he said something. And like on principle, he's like, you know, I didn't say anything in particular that's anti-Semitic or this and that. I simply said to look at a film. If you want to educate me on the, the facts or dispute it, that's one thing. But I didn't say anything. You know, do you think there's a limit as humans in today's society where, you know, there's all this intersectionalism, right? Like, you know, I want to hold my arm around my brother here and this person's my brother and that person's my brother. But is it real when you can't respect somebody else's opinion, even if you think it's misguided, where you don't provide that, you know, everything's all good with expressing yourself until it steps on my lawn and I don't like what you said anymore. And isn't that a problem, right? Like, isn't shouldn't you be able to say, and we've said things to each other before, like, shouldn't we be able to say something and, and you don't feel threatened or intimidated or, or vice versa by it. And you can live in your space with your opinion. I can live in mine. Isn't that true respect for each other? And, and do we really have that now? I mean, it seems like everybody wants to play patty cake, like, but do, do they truly have respect? Cause respect is what if I say something that from a white perspective or a Jewish perspective or a black perspective or a Muslim perspective or a immigrant perspective or, you know, whatever perspective you just don't like, but we are never going to agree because we have different perspectives, but I still respect you and I'm not going to bully you into silence. I mean, do we really even have that? Because I feel like we don't. No, absolutely. don't. Absolutely. don't. Noam Chomsky, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite quotes. Mm hmm. And one of the brightest thinkers who I've read and studied, and he mm -hmm. says something, if you don't want equality, freedom of opinion for those you despise, then you don't believe in it at all. So true. And it, it, it was like a, a lightning strike. Not that I didn't think it already, but the way he articulated it was just it's so simple, but so profound that this whole notion that, oh, I'm, I'm not prejudiced 
or I'm not this or that, or I'm better than a Ku Klux Klan mm -hmm. as a black person, or I'm better than a Nazi skinhead. Mm -hmm. I'm better than Hitler. Well, are you? If, if somebody can say something that is not homophobic in tone, racist in tone, but just, you know, difference of opinion, I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to block you. I'm going to treat you differently. Okay. You didn't burn down somebody's house and put a cross on their lawn. Right. But it's the same attitude. Right. So what makes you better? No, and you're right. Yeah. I have to adjust myself, you know, in times where, in my, in my youth, you know, where mm -hmm. if you, if you weren't with me, you were against me. Attitude that I had. Right. You know what I'm saying? And right. you got to really, we, we got to ask ourselves, and I'm speaking, you know, to my people. When you talk, you know, you talk all that righteous talk. What makes you better or different than these people that you've been taught to despise? Right. If you're doing these things. But right. that was a profound quote for me, you know. Like if you gotta have you, I mean, hey, I disagree with you, but you have the right to say. And that, I've yes. never, I've never, you know, ran to an unfriend button, a block button, because somebody says something that I disagree with. If, if I'm if I'm looking at something somebody's saying, I don't see it that way. And I scroll right past it. And then when I see him later on, hey, how you doing? It's never no, what was that comment you made a couple months ago, man? I can't. <laughs> right. nothing, like, it's a waste of energy, man. Because I, I have to align myself with the under, like, we were talking about man and woman, you know, in the beginning. A woman may say she hates men and da 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 and then because I'm a man, I get mad at that. But again, it goes back to that very word that I mentioned in the beginning, context. Yes. If she was raped and abused as a little girl. Right. By men in her family. Yeah. Then, then that's the context you need to get to the, right. to the origin story of why she is the way she is. And do that's you the think same thing with, with us as men? You're right. And do you think I mean, you know, we talked about, you know, blocking and things like that. Like I, this show is obviously a huge advocate of it. And I am as a free speech, you know, the First Amendment, free exchange of ideas, no matter how much I may hate an idea, you have the right to say it. Culture. Yeah, you have the right to say, I mean, does social media now that look like you and I say, we are very critical of social media, yet we need to use it because that is now the public sidewalk is now the Facebook wall. The public sidewalk is now the Instagram. They have taken that space and made it the social megaphone. If you don't go on there, you're really talking to thin air. Do they have a responsibility in your abstract opinion? I'm not talking legally because that's a whole other ballgame, but, you know. Yeah. Do they have a responsibility to protect free speech and not allow canceling? Because, I mean, now false facts, Elliot, we've talked about. You're spreading like straight up lie on a factual news issue. That's one thing. I think it's different. But as far as opinions, I mean, should people be canceled from social media? Should social media take an active role in that? Should we be canceling people for opinions? Whether is we the hate opinion, them or not. Is the opinion hate speech is the opinion uh, homophobic is the opinion 
you know, transphobic. Right. I I, I have a friend of mine. She put a, a post up. And the post was saying, like, why are all these rainbows all over North now? Mm. What's with this agenda? Da, 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 da. Technically, it's an opinion. Mm-hmm. Opinion. But when I talked to her, like, I just I chuckled where I said, you just wanted to type 50 million comments today because you know what was coming with that. Some things you just know. Right. And the energy, you know, expenditure of having to defend something which is an opinion, but you know how it you know how that is is gonna look right. to say yes. why is rainbows all over the city. Right. But then you have then you have a bunch of people come and saying, well, because this city's about inclusion and da 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 Right. You know, so for me, I, I think I used to go really, really hard with some of the things I say. Now I, I pick my spots a little bit more. Right. I used to say things that were hard <laughs> surrounding. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, in, my, in my life, you know, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, and, and honesty, if you're really being honest, it's hard. Really hard. And it's going to rub some people the wrong way to see themselves and what you're saying. They see themselves in something that you said to the point where now they think that you're talking directly to them. Yes. You know, and, and, te- and I'll tell you, ask me, this is about, I'll tell you. If I had you in mind when I said it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. most times probably not. Right. You know what I'm saying? But is it one of those three things? You know, right. and when you get into those three things, let you know, laced within your opinion, now your opinion is something else. And now they're going to flag you. They're going to uh, delete your account for a month or whatever they do. Yeah. And that's <laughs> you know? that. No. And that's that's scary, too. Like. You know, I've told you before my opinion on, you know, that there's a Ken Gibson statue outside City Hall and there's a George Floyd statue. And I always am frustrated when I see people going to George Floyd, but not Ken Gibson. And I'm like, put Ken Gibson. Yeah, yeah. Put Ken Gibson on a monument. I'm all about it. Like it ain't. But if I were to say that to your point on Facebook, people would misconstrue what I'm talking about so much that I think I would just get flack. When it, it's got nothing to do with race, it's got nothing to do with, but that goes back to my power empowerment point. I'm like, one of those figures is an empowering figure. Another one is a tragic figure, but you know, I, I know better than to post it. Cause I don't want to catch all the flack is my point. Yeah. You know, what's tough, but, but and speaking of that, I will say this, my disappointment with that mm-hmm. is right now, as we speak, and you know, this because we mm-hmm. spoke about this in our city, we have a lot of corrupt policing going on. Mm-hmm. So it's a real wool over everybody's eyes gesture right. to put this tragic figure up when police in the city are pretty much being corrupt with how they write tickets. And this isn't just Ellie's opinion. This is document. This is mm-hmm. what Ellie lives and goes through. Mm-hmm. To me, it's the, it's the biggest crop of shit ever mm-hmm. to almost make it seem like, oh, we're for social justice. But meanwhile, people in your city can't get it from mm-hmm. its law officials. Then if you go through the history of police and the citizens in this city, tons of people killed in the North riots in the 60s. Right. Yes. Not one statue of anybody that died. 
Yeah, not one. I'm talking about a statue. Not, yeah. you know, little stuff that people don't know where it's at and people mm-hmm. can't see. I'm talking not about of a real, anybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of anyone. And mostly then black. Go, yep, yep. 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. So you're telling me in, in five decades, nobody's been killed by the police unjustly in the city. Mm-hmm. Nobody's been treated unjustly in the city. And if so, where are the statues of Fort? Mm-hmm. Instead, you want to put a statue up for somebody from Minnesota mm-hmm. to, to make some kind of grand statement about something you're not actually doing. And a, right. and, and a mentality that you don't actually have. Right. You know, because, and if you say, well, that's not true. Okay, I challenge you on the corruption that's been going on just in the three to four years I've lived downtown as a citizen downtown. The fact <laughs> that you write tickets on certain people and then other people who have mayoral placards in the dashboard get to just park and do whatever the hell they want to do. And that's, do you, that's wrong. Do you think, you know, dealing with young people and whatnot, and then we're going to dive into this book because I know I've been talking your ear off. I want people to have the context and I just love this conversation with you for this for this show. But you know, from a from a, again, this empowerment theme, this educational theme, you know, is it an issue that a kid might recognize George Floyd much quicker than Ken Gibson? I mean, and it's not that's not unique to uh, youth of color. That's not I mean, that's everybody. They're going to recognize, you yeah. know, a famous person over a historical figure every day of the week. I mean, so I'm not saying it's, you know, unique to Newark or unique to, you know, the youth here or anything. But yeah. is it a societal problem that, you know, we we push the media and visuals and sound bites so much that a kid's not going to know. This was the first African-American mayor of a major city in the Northeast. And you might not know who he is, but you know who that is. I mean, and that that's not just George Floyd, Ken Gibson. That's everything. That's your everything. congressman, you know, your yeah. congressman versus Cardi B, your your, you know, whoever versus uh Jake Paul, I mean Logan Paul. Yeah. I mean, is that's a societal problem, isn't it? I, I, can we ever get past that? I'll say this. First of all, it's a huge problem. But here's why. Mm-hmm. To know where you stand, to know on what ground you're standing, you have to understood, understand all those who came before you who stood in that spot. Right. To understand where you're at in in your present life, you have to know the history of other people's lives. Right. Who stood in those same spots, in those same positions. And to have some kind of aspiration about what you want your future to be, you have to know your history. Mm -hmm. And when kids don't know the depths of where we come from, who we come from, what's happened to us Mm -hmm. and the places that we live. Yes. It's a huge, huge disservice to them. And it stagnates their life. And I'm talking about myself. There are things that I learned till I was 30 something years old while I was being taught that Christopher Columbus discovered this country and when I was looking in history books and seeing a picture of a white man with, uh, you know, as a, as a sphinx, when we got to the chapters on Egypt, yeah, in our textbooks, yeah, 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 it it takes years from it's almost like a jail sentence. 
when you are enlightened to something, when you thought about it in one way your whole life, you were taught one way your whole life, and then all of a sudden you found out that everything you were taught was bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's almost like sitting in a dark room for 20 years where there was no shades, no windows, and somebody take you outside. Yes. That's what it that's what it's like. And these children, I can't help but say it again. If they're charged to lead a country forward when we're old, mm-hmm. how can they do it? Mm-hmm. And and so this this book now, and I want to get into it now. Now, first of all, I just want to touch on the fact that, you know, you talk a lot about locality. And I think you and I are of the obviously we have aspirations and obviously you have aspirations as an artist. And obviously this book has been reaching far and wide, well outside the confines of this city and this state. At the same time, you know, a, a big wealth and reservoir of support and distribution is obviously pretty local. I mean, what from this book standpoint, from your reach, I know you lectured recently at your college, you know, how important is it for us to have local mentors, local leaders, local artistic figures, you know, even before they get bigger on a national scale, how important is it everywhere for people to revere their local figures? I mean, you've been making the rounds at local poetry shows, you know, you're in local bookstores and that's, that's not local in the sense of like a block. That's like multiple Mm -hmm. cities in New Jersey and beyond, but, how important is it to, to get art like this and, and literature like this out, even on a local level? You know, how important is that? To, to let people know that, number one, I'm not special. And the things that, that I do are attainable for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's different when you have to look to a TV and see somebody doing something. It's like, wow, they're so far away. Wow. I wish I could be there. I wish I could do what they do. Mm-hmm. But then you, you can go outside and see somebody. Or like even we, we talk about hip hop, you know, like, mm-hmm. wow, Queen Latifah was Mervinson. Wow. Yes. Joe Button. Wow. You know, Redman. Wow. Mm-hmm. They're from here. Mm-hmm. So when you see somebody from coming from where you come from, speaking your language, and they're doing it, then it's just, it's not this thing that's so far away and unattainable in our mind and spirit, you know? So for me, growing up in schools, I didn't see no black teacher. I The only black teacher I had from first grade to senior year happened to be uh, my gym teacher who happened to be my track and field and basketball coach, Mr. Mm-hmm. Burrell. I didn't have a a black male English teacher. I didn't have a a black male science teacher. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden in my mind, because I'm not seeing these people in front of me teaching me these these serious subjects, now I'm thinking, well, we must not be good at science. Or we must not be, you know, capable of teaching math. Right. So then as a black male, you kind of get away from that as a as an occupational uh, desire, right. like when you're looking for work or things that you can do or ways that you can impact the world, those things are already dismissed from your from your mindset because you've never seen it. Good point. You know. Yeah. So so, that, so, so for me, that's why I was so important. Yeah. Makes sense. And now, so so tell me about this title. So it's you know 
the world is I, I see it. I, what's with the, the, I, you know, you spell it like an I, like a body part. I, uh, but you constantly and consistently use it as I, you know, me, I, the letter I, what's, what's the, um, tell, explain that. Well, a couple things I was reading up on the, the pineal gland, Mm -hmm. which we understood to be the third eye. Mm-hmm. Your two eyes in your head, and that third eye, which is your center, you know, right. that lends itself to innate perspective, right, and openness, you know. Mm-hmm. And reading it kind of gave me the idea, like back in like 2018, 2019, because I was writing something that involved it. Third Eye, Third Eye. Mm-hmm. Then I remember it was a song um, by Roy Ayers uh, called The Third Eye. You, mm-hmm. uh, you love that song. Mm-hmm. You don't know it already. Um, but I was just listening to that song back and forth, just, baby, baby, baby. <laughs> you know I love Ayers. I started writing, and then I'm thinking about, okay, the initial title just was The Letter Eye. Yes. Then I'm thinking about, oh, okay, okay the dynamics of this book is, is more centered around vantage point. Yes. And how our vantage points and perspectives based on where we come from, based on our traumas, based on cultural traumas, this country traumas, mm. how it all, you know, melds and creates this nexus through which we all exist but that is also causing the division between all of us. And that also causes division from us and our spirit. Right. The way it's meant to be. I think right. innately, we, we talked about the book cover. I've been explaining what that means a lot. I was talking about that a lot at my lecture. Mm-hmm. At King. And um, innately, when we're born, we know nothing but to be good mm-hmm. and to be fun and to be free and happy and smiling. Mm -hmm. It's our interactions with each other that shape and mold and change us into more guarded, maybe more cynical people. And in that cynicism is where you get all of the damage, the confusion, the inner chaos and the outer chaos. Right. Of us and our ability to coexist here, men and women, black and white. Uh, you see this war now, Palestine and Israel, like all of this stuff to the outer eye, you know, is, is like, mm-hmm. okay, well, there was a reason this happened. But mm-hmm. I'm, th- I'm getting back to, or I'm, at least I'm attempting to get to the origins of why and how we come to be right and how our thought and perspective on our, on our place here and on the world around us is shaped. That makes sense. And that makes a that lot became of sense. the impetus for what I was trying to do with a lot of the writing in the selection. It makes sense. So it's, it's like the world as I see it. It's not just as you see it, the individual, but as that third eye, that instinctive yeah. eye, which can be you or universal in a spiritual sense too. I totally understand yeah. 
that, and it makes a hell of a lot of sense. Now, you talked about how you were vibing to Roy Ayers at one point when you were being creative and came up with that title or that rendition of the title. Tell me about your creative process. You know, I, I'm an avid fan of your poetry. Obviously, every poem may be a different process, but in general, I mean, what inspires you? What's your creative process like? When do you usually find yourself coming up with things? Is it listening to a song? Is it the weather? Is it the change of the season, the lighting? You know, what puts you in the zone and how do you like to be in the zone when you're writing? Reflection. Um, A lot of my writing is I'm delving back into my childhood, my teenage years, something that might have happened my relationships. Um, and when I can already start off mm-hmm. with, you know, a story, then what happens then is I just have to try to turn it, you know, into poetry, but the story's already there. I'm not, I'm not even having to dig for anything. It's already there. When I, when I wrote my poem about, you know, my relationship, with my father and, mm-hmm. What, what that was like from childhood to, you know, that was already there. I just had to, you know, so what makes it easy for me is, is I'm not reaching for something that isn't there. I'm not reaching for something that's inauthentic to me. Gotcha. Um, so in a way, that's like, I would say that foremost. Um, and then secondly, obviously, huge fan of art, huge fan of music. Mm-hmm huge fan of environment and i take i i you know it's a big pot of gumbo that i throw all of these things into when i'm writing it makes sense and and that's what allows me to you know that gives me my starting point and then from a technical aspect you know i do a lot of rhyme poetry yes you know with people rhyme poetry doesn't have to be cat hat bat sat at rat, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You can use assonance. You can use, you know, a lot of different uh, tools within the English language, you know, that can give uh, lines, line cadences, a sound that's similar, even though the words that are in the lines aren't actually rhyming words. Right. Yes. And that, that just, I pick up on rhythm that mm-hmm. way, which comes from music. You know, like, so when I say something, I, I might say, uh, we were like war veterans in Vietnam, a uh, band of brothers who wrapped their arms like phlebotomists and rubber to quiet the hunger of happiness going asunder. So rubber, hunger, asunder, mm-hmm. unrhymed. Right. But the, the, the cadence that's created from words going back to back sounds like rhyme words. 100%. You know, uh, you know so that's just the style you know, a beautiful mom who's fragile under the weight of solitude a cell crude with the hauntings of bad choices, voices that expand like Edward Scissorhands and sanity is a test and intestinal fortitude. Like it sounds wrong, but it's not. Yes. Now, that brings me to another question. I mean, now you perform yeah. quite a bit and you're a hell of a performer and I, and that's yeah. part of your whole art. Do you write with an eye toward performing, i.e. are you reciting this stuff out loud and thinking how it would sound in performance or is this more for the for the paper? Because you publish it in written word, but you also perform. Are you writing yeah. with an eye towards performance? No, I'm, I'm writing. I'm, I'm writing. And then once it's done, I could tell what I write. 
to make it performable. Ah, you know, yeah. Uh, like when I did Life is Cinema, mm-hmm. which is the two one of my that favorites. One of my favorites. Yeah. I I was like, though, it'll be dope to try to do a poem to tell a story using all movie titles mm. or using mostly movie titles. Mm. So I started and then like the first line, I was just, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start this. I don't know. I'm going to go about it. And then the first line was, uh, you know, chilling on broad and market, remembering hood Titans. So mm-hmm. remember the Titans. Mm-hmm. And instead I say hood Titans, mm-hmm. like harkening back to my neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, Gangsters that was on the corner, dudes that ran the block, you know what I'm saying? That demanded respect. Remembering hood titans. Right. Right. You know? And then I'm like, okay, I'm like, well, I'm a, I'm a bill from there. Gotcha. I was chilling on broad and market, remembering hood titans before I decided to woo pretty women. Woo <laughs> is a movie uh, with Jada Pinkett. Mm-hmm. And then pretty women... Obviously, Richard Gere, Julia Roberts. Right, so of course. I just started. Right. So now I'm, I'm just. So now I'm. Now I'm tinkering. With, gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Like, how am I? You know. Yes. How am I getting to get to the next? Came, yes. Yeah. Then I'm like, okay. Yes. So I always before I was, you know, I had my license and had to catch a bus. I would always catch the 24 bus. Mm-hmm. You know, because I would be going from North to Elizabeth, and and so I was always on that bus. So I like it. The 24 came. I got on the bus. Get on the bus. Uh-huh. <laughs> so no, it, like, it makes know, sense. So it just that's how it started and then it just kept it kept building and building and building. Got you. You know, but that's how I write. But then I'm like, this poem is long, but I knew how much how good of a poem it was and that I would eat with this like in, in poetry slam. So that's when I had to start memorizing it. And now it's I got it to where it's pretty much mastered. But I've always wow. wrote first for myself, you know. Got you. And then if I felt like it's something that, you know, could resonate with people or that people thought, you know, damn, this shit is dope, then I'd be like, all right, I need to, I need for the world to hear this. Got you. So now with respect to the world hearing it, when you, when you put this book together, how much of this was a collection of poems you already had from miscellaneous times and how many of these poems were written with an eye toward this book? No pun intended. I mean, how how many of these poems did you know were going in this book, and how much of this is just an anthology of you and a collection that you had sporadically? I mean, at what point, you know, did you know this this book's coming out and these poems are the ones for it? And how much was written before that, and how much was written after that? Approximately, I got about uh, I got approximately sixty plus poems mm-hmm. um, in the book. Mm-hmm. Of those, I would say about. 45 of them, probably 50 even, was written directly for the book. Okay. And 10 of them were just fillers of things that I had written that that weren't in any other manuscript. So I figured I would expand the book out by adding them. And and a lot of those books are, a lot of those poems, Mm -hmm. the poems that I end up putting in the bonus section of the book. And I see that, right? That makes that makes sense, too. Now, now, let me ask you about the structure of the book. So you have, you know, book one with the eye open and then you have the, the, the subsequent books. Um, what what goes into that? What what poems fit into which section and why? Uh, I open was really when when I 
if you look at the covers, you'll see that one on one side of the book. Yes. You'll see my eye closed. And the other yes. side, you'll see my eye open. Mm-hmm. The eye open, which I believe is the one that uh, has the, the horns on top of my head. It is. Is your eye open is what you're seeing. Yes. What you're seeing is changing you from the person that you want to be into a person that, that has to be someone else to survive. Mm. So my eye open, I'm doing poems from the perspective of what I'm seeing. Yes. You know, and how it's changing and altering who I'm trying to be. Yes. The eye closed part is me looking inwardly and looking into my own spirit for resolution from mm. what I'm from what I'm seeing. Makes perfect sense so, with the title. So when you see the halo over the over my head with my eyes closed, that's harkening back into the goodness and all of the positive things aspirationally that I that I'm trying to be and do. It makes you a know, lot of sense. And I'm looking inside to 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 feel that. You know, the eye open is like I'm I'm speaking directly on my experience and how I'm being treated and what I'm feeling from that treatment. Makes sense. And not every single poem like lends itself to, but you know, I do a right. large majority like in the, in the you know, the first open the eye open chapter, you know, I talk about there's a poem there called Devil's Advocate. There's a poem in there, Dog Eat Dog, you know, which really was a kind of an homage to uh the Michael Vick situation and how mm-hmm. hypocritical I thought his treatment was, even though what he did was horrible, obviously it was horrible. Right. And foolish. You know, you're right. a millionaire athlete and do it all the way for that. But I did find hypocrisy in, in the notion that, you know, you send a guy away to federal prison mm-hmm. for this. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm seeing white men who go big game hunting and killing, you know, deer and, and Cape Buffalo. And then putting antlers on top of their fireplace. Yeah. Or, you know, down in Texas where they, they take snakes and put them in a vat and skin them alive. Yeah. To make belts and shoes and coats. And we walk mm-hmm. around wearing that stuff proudly. Meat mm-hmm. coats and all this stuff. None of these people in federal jail, but this black athlete. I mean, so then we're going to, were you measuring what's worse? Right. Or it's worse that, you know, he... You know, so is a snake not as valuable as a dog? Is it is a buffalo and a pride not as valuable as, as a dog? Be like, how do you measure what's more important and who should go to jail for what? Right. You know, and that's, you know, so all of these things are things that I think to when I'm writing. And, yeah. and so, yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a there's a definite, you know, this isn't just I think, you know, and that's true, I think, with any legitimate artist is, is you know, some of it is completely sentimental or completely internal and other things are critical, societally critical. There's plenty of societal criticism, you know, within laced in this poetry, which is, I think, what makes, you know, such a complete work, uh, this book, a complete work and your your work in general, complete and, you know, all encompassing and wide ranging. Uh, I want to talk about it's it's a very visual book, and I I know that. You know, from a marketing, from a consumption, from a, a, a 
you know, attention standpoint that visuals we, we've talked about that visuals are going to catch people's eyes a little better because the written word is what it is. But I, I we know that what I want to talk about is how you went about, you know, with your uh, visual design personnel, how you went about curating, you know, what images went with what poems, what fit, because it's I mean, it's not just beautiful from a written perspective it's a beautiful book as far as these visuals and it has a distinct cohesive mood throughout the pages and it certainly conveys you know something what went into selecting the images and how you organize them with the poems what was that process i wanted i wanted my book to be a tapestry of light and dark of hope and despair a melding together of pain and joy Mm -hmm. from my perspective. Mm -hmm. And and so, but then I also wanted to be biblical. Right. So the book is, so you open the book, it kind of looks like the way that the paper looks. Yes. The the inside front cover, it looks, it's it's made to look like kind of a a Bible, like a, a tattered Bible. Yes. Like I have the serenity prayer in the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, my graphic designer Jabez, who's a monster, he's phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, dude. speaks for itself. Talent, but also as far as the the human the human being himself, he's just a good a good brother. Mm-hmm. And we sat down, and I'm like, well, how can I make this look different than most any other book that's been written? Right. Because so many people write books, and yeah. Some people write books, and when you get to actually read the book, if you take time with it, it's like, okay, it's a decent book, but you probably should have took more time with it, you know, to, to make it. Like, a lot of people feel, a lot of people are afraid, too, mm-hmm. in the sense that they don't want to invest a whole lot because in their back of their mind, they're like, if I invest a whole lot, it doesn't sell. Or it doesn't right. sell as fast as I want it to. Now I've just pretty much burned a few thousand dollars where I might only have a couple thousand dollars in my bank account. Right. To do a book. Yeah, it's tough. So a lot of people start off and they have this acquiescing, defeatist attitude towards their own vision for what they're trying to do. So they take cheap routes mm. to produce it. Mm. And I know because that's what I did my first two, my first two books, paperback, black words on white paper, your typical right. standard poetry book is in terms mm-hmm. of design. Mm-hmm. The book covers were awesome on those, but mm-hmm. the inside just looked like your regular plain Jane poetry book. Right. And I sold those, I sold those books, mm-hmm. but it was very, very slow. And when you're performing or you're at a, a author expo and there's like a thousand authors or, or a few hundred authors there and people are walking through perusing every what everybody has going on. If your book like everybody else's book, then you just got a bunch of books and yours is just one of those books that's there. Right. And somebody might buy it or might not. Right. And <laughs> when you do that, then it's like, eh, if I don't really take the time to really make this stand out, then I may have just wasted my time, 
you know, and I might have a book that just sits, you know, in my closet, cases of books I ordered that I can't really sell as fast as I want to because there's no appeal. Right. I had to create the appeal. For in a time where in the 50s and 60s, you know, the TV was, you know, mm-hmm. you might have had a couple sports that you could listen to on the radio, but TV what people read. Today mm-hmm. is a you're competing against so much mm-hmm. when you're trying to be an author. Mm-hmm. You're competing against so much. And if you're gonna try to be an author in this modern time, you have to really shape your product into something that creates a pill for somebody to sit with the book. If I'm working hard to write a book and I'm I'm just pouring my guts out over over the course of 200 pages of a book, mm-hmm. but then somebody takes the book because of how it looks. Right. And they read five pages and put it down. Right. Because it's just bored. Right. You poured your life out, but to the person reading it, it's, it's boring. Mm-hmm. It, it's not maintaining or keeping the person's attention level. Makes sense. So this so, this obviously yeah. switches up and it, it's it holds your attention because the colors and the, the juxtaposition of the different pages next to each other and the way it pops every time you turn the page. I mean, it obviously holds your attention much longer, I think. And this is the kind of book you could skip around in, too, you know, and just whatever picture or visual might catch your eye and title, you may read that particular poem, you know, and then go backward another day, read something else. So I, I understand what you did there. I think it works quite effectively. I'm an avid reader, but, you know, and there's some brilliant books mm-hmm. that a lot of people won't take the time with just because how they look. It's hard to sit, especially young kids. The, yes. the, the the, the audience demographic that you're shaping this for, which is teenagers to young adults, 18 to maybe 25 years old, is the August or 30 years old. That's the audience you're targeting. There's so much you're competing against. Yes. And, and kids are not just sitting there at home in their living room cracking a book open. Yes. And reading the whole thing. <laughs> yes. You know, and they may not even read 20 pages of it. You know, so you want to write your ass off. You want people to read what you wrote. You got to make everything else about the book something that's desirable to read. Makes sense. You know, for, for the reader, you know. So I knew that when I said, and then as far as making it a hardcover book, doing the pages, all these little things that cost money to do, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't mind paying it because you, it is, there's no cheap road to success. And you're gonna have to pay the you're gonna have to pay the price, you know, literally and figuratively, for the quality that you want to have associated with you. Right. It's quality. What you're paying for, you know, it's not like a thing where you buy like a three hundred dollar pair of sunglasses, and and if you sit on those sunglasses, they're gonna break like a five dollar pair of sunglasses. <laughs> right. The way it's gonna break if you sit on them wrong or you step on them. Right. You know, no. Nah, it's like if you go and buy a five hundred dollar car. You're like, I just, I just need a car. I'm going to pay this. Mm-hmm. You know, then you're probably going to have to put $5,000 into that car to keep it running. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Versus just buying a $6,000 car. Mm-hmm. No, it makes, <laughs> I mean, no it, makes, it makes perfect sense. 
Uh, and yeah. to that look to that end with with creating art that matters and with getting people to have attention to the art and I want you know I want to draw everybody's attention or your attention to a specific poem which is We the Gladiators and it 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 caught my attention specifically because obviously I create things and and what is it about us what is it about creative people you know we like I, I put a status the other day and it said all art is altruistic and all art is narcissistic I mean. What is it about the the artist, the gladiator? Because I love the ending line where we are the gladiators dying to amuse lames. Like, like we why do we create for ourselves? Like this book is is part of the the, the beauty of this hardcover book is it's yours too, right? It's on your mantle, yeah. it's your creation. It means something to you, but yet we also want it to mean something to other people. We want it to grab their attention. We're not happy if somebody picks it up and reads the first page and puts it down. We want them to read the whole thing. What is it about the artist? What is it about the creative mind that that we we seek some sort of validation even though we don't, even though we remind ourselves we don't need it, we still so mm-hmm. desperately need it? What is it about us? I, um, well, with this poem in particular, I found myself, it was a couple years ago, having a conversation with somebody at a show. And, mm-hmm. and we were talking about writing for ourselves versus writing for the audience. Mm-hmm. And it was in a slam, like, like it was after the slam competition. And obviously with slam, you know, you're being, you know, you're being judged. You, you're performing a poem and then somebody's going to put, you know, oh, this poem was, you know, was 27.2 or this poem was 25.3 or, you know, and it, the poem itself is really about getting away from numbers and judgment as mm-hmm. a, you know, I guess a foundation for how good your poetry or your work actually is. Mm. You know, so when the poem starts, you know, do I amuse you? Do I arouse you? Do I make you happy? Do I make you clap? It's, right. it's to say, like, when I'm when I'm writing a poem about the death of a loved one, and then I go and perform it, and somebody say, oh, it's 26. Mm-hmm. You know, that something like that, if you're not mentally tough enough or spiritually tough enough, that could break your spirit and never make you want to create anything again. Or it's the same thing. Like, I remember... Um, I was looking at this documentary on on John Michelle Basquiat, which was one of my, you know, just him and Keith Haring, like those are my my muse, like the, those right. are my muses. Mm-hmm. But John was was talking in this interview about how when he was trying to get his art into MoMA, mm-hmm. and they're they're in MoMA, and like what they defined as art was like a white, a all white box on top of another white box <laughs> right? With, with like one little dot on it and they call this piece such and such and, and it was worth a hundred thousand gallery <laughs> right. but then they were telling John that his art wasn't what you know the, the art the art community was needing at that time right you know right yes yes and, and lo and behold now they're begging to have his heart everywhere Mm-hmm. And every gallery exhibit that they can put it in, and then he's been dead since what 1988, mm-hmm. and now his work is like selling for 1.3 billion dollars, and <laughs> you know, right, it, it, right, it just to go to show you that 
people, it's always disheartening when people who don't have vision yes. are the ones that are holding the keys to the gate. Yes. Decide whether or not to let you in. Mm. And if you're not strong enough to see through that or to say, no, I don't care what you say. I know what I'm doing is dope. Yes. Then you're going to, then you're going to, your fire is going to be extinguished for whatever lane of art that you're in, whether it's poetry, whether it's painting, whatever, or even in athletics. Because in a way, that's an art form, you know? Right. Right. that's what I was saying here. You know, who are you? Who am mm. I? Right. You know, you can't put a first place ribbon by my pain or clap your hands to convince me I have a name. Right. You know, I like the booze and jeers won't make me ashamed. It takes balls to come on this stage, no matter who you are. Right. You know, so right. that's really what the, you know, so it's saying that the people that have the heart to pursue what they want to pursue. Mm-hmm. They're the gladiators. Mm-hmm. The people who stand in the audience throwing tomatoes mm-hmm. or or with an insulting thing to say about what you're doing up there, they're the they're the lames, they're the bums. Right. They don't have a heart to chase their dreams. Makes a lot of sense. Bro. They they rather just shit talk about what somebody else is actually doing while they don't do nothing. You're right. And that's the separation between I say all the time, you know, your life. And work ethic will change when you see your life as being greater than sitting on a couch, watching TV, and seeing other people's dreams come true. I put that up as a post. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the realest things that I stick, I stick by that. Mm-hmm. We come home and we watch people, you know, they they we watch people, a lot of people who be clowns, and some of them are clowns. I'm not saying that everybody who's on TV is whatever. Right. There are, there are a lot of people who are millionaires and they're clowns. <laughs> you know who they are. Yeah. But in this respect, they had the heart to go <laughs> and put themselves in a place where now they have a foundation. And we may think it's silly, but they had the heart to do it. Makes sense. So Makes if you're smarter fun. than these people, then why don't you do it? Mm-hmm. Because you're looking to you like, I'm, I'm better than this guy. I'm smarter than this guy. Or you'll watch a football game. Why, why, what the hell is he doing? He should have ran right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, oh, he didn't break that tackle. Oh, you fucking bum. You dropped the ball. But then, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're talking as if, you know what I'm saying? You're out you're there out with him. doing it, right. <laughs> you're sitting on the couch. It's true. We all we're all good. You don't know what it's like to, to watch the fucking yeah. six eight defensive lineman running four three <laughs> trying to tackle you. You would drop the ball too. Yes, true. You know story. what I'm saying? So yes. you know, so it's just having a heart to to be that guy on the field mm-hmm. and not that guy on the couch. It's almost like the the man in the arena, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I love that. Say, one, one of my favorites. Yeah, one of my favorites. But it's, it's pretty yeah. much in that same vein. Got you. Absolutely. Now, one the one more, and, and people are going to, we're going to talk about like how people could get the book so they could take a look at all the other poems too. But another poem that caught my eye just in general, because I, I, I tend to be very, especially as I reach middle age, very aware of my mortality and, you know, what's my purpose here and what can I do? Tell us about this poem, Inspire, Expire, you know, Inspire Until We Expire. Oh, yeah. I know what it means to me, but what does it mean to you? And 
And and what does it say about your overall philosophy, you know, on, on what you set out to do every day when you create this art, when you go to work, when you, you know, how does that tie into your life in general and what does that mean to you? Oh, man. Inspired X by is just saying go hard every day because you don't know how many days you have. Mm-hmm. And it's me saying to myself, because a lot, a lot of these poems people think I'm talking to someone or some of them I'm talking to myself. Right. Some of them are affirmations to myself. And and what the poem you just picked is one of those aspiration poems that you, you it's like something that you whisper to yourself when you're training, you whisper mm-hmm. to yourself when, you know, you're lifting weights, you know, you, you know, just things to get you fired up and get you pumped up about what you have to go and attack in that right. moment. And it's, for me, it's like, you know, I want to be somebody who reaches out to kids and who keeps them, you know, motivated to be better than their successors, you know? And it was the task that I set forth for myself, Mm -hmm. you know? We're tired, tired excuses that keep progression tied and wide. You know, that line, (laughs) we're Mm -hmm. tired, tired excuses that keep progression tied and wide. Yes. It's saying, you know, like, as long as you're holding on to the negative or trying to find any way possible to, you know, to keep yourself distracted and stagnated. And a lot of the stuff, the the social media stuff we talked about, all of this stuff is mindless babble that weakens and, and strips your energy for anything else. Right. Right. And that's why I had, I mean, we, I mean, for many reasons, this stuff has to be eliminated, but, for the main reason of while you're sitting here talking about somebody else's life, what Kanye is doing, what uh, Palestine and Israel, we live in North New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It's not to say you don't have to have an interest in this stuff, but this, we're in another country. And yeah. we talk every day about the same things, but then you look at your own life and it's like, what am I doing here? Right. You know, right. and it's like, no. Nah. So you're talking about other things and other people and it's all an excuse for you to not move in your own life. Right. Seriously move. Like, right. when I always said, I'll know, <laughs> you know, that some, if somebody's angry or not, based on how much they talk. Makes sense. So if, you tell, so if you're telling me you're angry or you want to change something, then I, I should be looking at you and you should have a stone face of a killer. Mm-hmm. When you have a stone face of a killer, then I then I can start to believe, like, because at some point you run out of words when you're trying to get things accomplished, you know. Um, right. right. Set fire to lies distributed in King Solomon's size to children, husbands, and wives. That's what we talked about tonight. Mm-hmm. Set fire to lies distributed in King Solomon's size to children, yeah. husbands, and wives. Uh, get rid of the false rhetoric and the yeah. false narrative. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's another way, that's another responsibility you have and we're trying to inspire. Mm-hmm. That's know? what the show um, does, right? Walk fear out back doors 
swept past out black pools. Now this line right here, mm -hmm. it may be something that people don't understand. Mm -hmm. But what I mean by swept past out black pools, mm -hmm. it's not to say, because like I said, when we talk about the George Floyd thing, yes. you need to know your history. Yes. You know, to understand where you are presently and where you're trying to go futuristically. Mm -hmm. So you need your history, but don't let your history become a crutch. Right, right. And so many people do that. Very true. You know, Very true. like a crutch to the point where every, you're living as if nothing has progressed. You're living as if everything is the same as it was 50 years, and it's not. Right. You're right. Take yeah. those lessons from that time and remember what it was like. Because TV does that. You know, you, they put up every time they put on a rate, you know, a, a slave movie or they come out with it, just things to remind you. And it's constant. It's like a, all they do. It's like it's like they're yeah. sing, that's the singular These thing. Pictures that they, of black that, people hanging yeah. from trees. And, you know, like we know the history. All we need to do is see it once to know that it, we don't need to yeah. keep beating ourselves over the head. Because all it's going to do is make you hate people. You know, based on what you think their lineage is, or what their right. ancestry is, or what their grand great grandparents, did. and you don't know. Right, right. You don't know, and then the thing about it, to go further, is that you'll be amazed if you go historically. Some of our people, black people, kept slaves. Yeah, which I didn't know until recently, and then met somebody who knew, knew that her ancestors had slaves, and still was trying to say. How do you know yours didn't? I was like, mine weren't even in this country. They were they were paupers overseas. I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty sure. But damn, you, you're a black woman and you're telling me you know that your ancestors had slaves, yet you're one of the most vocal people out here. And it's like, I'm not saying you can't be, but damn, like, like we don't we don't know everything, you know, historically. You don't. And 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 to to beat you, and then that's and that's what always amuses me about religion is that you got 5,000 religions in this and on this planet yep. that are being practiced mm -hmm. in practice at least mm -hmm. so how arrogant is it of you to believe that only yours is correct and I want to touch but that's what people live in speaking of that <laughs> you, you know, know Deadville's Advocate, which you did a video for, which, you know, is obviously one of the best things. I mean, look, thought provoking, controversial, uh, insightful, satirical, uh, satirical to a, a sharpened edge. And what I mean is, I mean, it, it, it's so legitimately true that it's it's undeniable, yet it's very pointed and stabbing, you know, and you don't hold anything back. I mean, you know, and, and before you talked about, um, you know, coming up in a world where, you know, that that can be whitewashed in many ways. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I think this this poem's well beyond this, obviously, racial things. But, you know, even when you said that, I thought about the, the images of the white Jesus and all that nonsense, you know, that yeah. that permeates how we think. And I mean, you know, the, the Jesus that we see in every candlestick and every picture and is this like fair, white, you know, light brown haired guy who we, we now yeah. know from history is like Michelangelo. Angelo's 
uncle or something. You know, it's not anything like the real Jesus would have looked like. But I mean, yeah. I, you know, this goes beyond that. Tell me, a, talk to me a little bit about, and that'll be the last poem we touch on before we tell people how they can get this book. But Deadville's advocate, man, speaking of religion, speaking of people having emotional attachments to their beliefs, I mean, you really took it out logically and 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 in depth and artfully and kind of really said you know you just called people out and called society out i mean what's behind that poem you know and you spoke you said you know jesus has a is another poem in a book mm-hmm. called black sin mm-hmm. yes and you know i'm like you know we're taught you know that our savior is you know some you know bearded white guy mm-hmm. jesus or santa because mm-hmm. it's the same yeah. when you yeah. <laughs> jesus yeah. or santa because yeah. ironically they both have beards they're both you know coming to give us gifts and you know we're taught to sit on their lap and you know mm-hmm. as, as black yeah. you know and as black kid again i ain't had no chimney right so you put know, so you, you know like <laughs> i get in the house and uh-huh. if you come in there i get shot you know like so it's like you know what I'm saying? so I, I just poke fun by saying that, but I used to get into my, I, I, my family really religious. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, God rest her soul. Mm-hmm. When my mother got murdered, mm-hmm. she needed faith. Yep. And in a way, as I got older and under, and learned about my mother's murder, I did the opposite. I started shunning faith. Right. I had no faith in humanity when that happened. Right. Because, you know, it's like, so so somebody who's almighty, all-powerful, they, they overlooked my mother being stabbed up 70-something times and didn't come through the sky, didn't throw a lightning bolt, didn't do shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm supposed to believe in this person. Why? Mm-hmm. And I got into really heated <laughs> interactions. But then a lot of my family began to understand. They began to understand why I carried the resentment. Right. Which they should have knew anyway. Of course. You know, because <laughs> it wasn't just yeah. about my mother. It was about I have had friends who got killed. I'm seeing all of this crap around me. Mm-hmm. And then I'm reading the command. What really did it for me is I started thinking critically. I started looking at the commandments and I started yeah. seeing racism in them. Yep. When you say thou shalt not steal. And mm-hmm. I saw not just racism, but classism. Mm-hmm. If I'm born in a place, mother broke, father broke, mother dead father not there on drugs there's nothing in my cupboard to eat mm-hmm. i go and i steal a damn honey bun out of the corner store mm-hmm. so technically i'm stealing mm-hmm. and i'm and i'm conscious because i've been in church i'm conscious that oh i shouldn't steal but this is what my life is am right. i going to hell right right you know right. and who wrote these commandments because I'm, right. I'm like in my mind i'm like i have a hard time believing that an impoverished people wrote these commandments. Mm. Right. 
Right. So it, it started messing with my spirit in regard. Then, then I grew up in the church. I went to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Didn't go for the right reasons. I went to try to highlight girls and shit. And try to, <laughs> you know, you know. I, right. I thought I was never there to listen to what the pastor was actually saying, right. even though the pastor, who's now the bishop, mm-hmm. I actually have a lot of respect for because he was a former drug addict, mm-hmm. changed his life around. And when he preached, he didn't preach bullshit. Right. Some of it I agree with, but he ain't, I can say right. he didn't preach bullshit. Right. And I know that he was coming from a place of the position that he actually was in, what he was saying. So I had a lot of respect from that aspect. Mm-hmm. But I didn't like a lot of stuff I saw. I didn't like when they would come around with a collection plate trying yep. to get, now you, you know now as a man that they needed that they need whatever money they get to keep the place yes. running. Yes. But it, it just it, you know, it just it was a sour it created a sour sour taste in your mouth, you know, to see little stuff that would go on in the church. And then you then you know, you see people, you know. God fearing people, but they they cheating on their husband and wife, you know, uh, or wife. Right. You see some women who are married, but they trying to get at the pastor. You see, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, behind closed doors. You see mm-hmm. all of this stuff, and then you say to yourself, "Is the is the real work of God? If God does exist, doesn't even does it actually even happen in the church? I'm right. sitting in this yes, place right. looking for salvation, and the salvation is outside. Mm-hmm. The work that needs to be done." Mm-hmm. You know, spiritual work needs to be done. You need, you need on the street corners. Mm-hmm. Those are people that you need to, you know, be trying to convert. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I then I looked at it like, okay, is this something you believe, or do you, or do you just, you know, is an insurance policy because you don't, you feel like, oh, as long as I believe in God, I ain't gonna go to hell. Whatever that is, I, I don't personally believe that there's a place with fire and you know. <laughs> Brimstone and all your Me worst thing happen. I believe that hell is something that's inside of you. Yeah, that can be inside of you if if you don't operate in your life from a from a place of peace and and so on. You know, like, makes sense. So I when I started writing the poem, then I'm starting. To, then I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about my own life, my father, mm-hmm. my mother, my friends. Mm-hmm. Things I'm seeing, and that's where the poem came from, and that's why I started architecting. Then when I did the video, uh, shout out to my man Jonathan Cutler, great video. He is. I haven't spoken to him in a while, you know, but he had the con because he came to me while the book was still, the, all the all the poems were done, but I didn't have anybody to do the graphic design stuff yet, mm-hmm. and we were starting to get the photos together. We actually ended up going to this like it's like it was like a abandoned church school. Yep. So it yep. completely gutted out. The aesthetic and, was great. You know, so but he was like, it was the perfect aesthetic mm-hmm. for uh for what we're doing. Because because it just gave it just gave this 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 aura of menace and like a haunted house church type of vibe. And oh yeah. Where was so it? We, it was in Trenton. We, yep. we we did it gorilla style. Like nobody let us in. We climbed through yep. like a, a window <laughs> yep. in the back of. I'm like, what the hell are we doing here? Because I'm in a suit. <laughs> in the video, I'm wearing a suit. Yeah, no. I'm climbing up shit, climbing on gates. I'm like with, with a full suit on. I'm like, <laughs> so. <laughs> 
but we did an excellent shoot. And then the the um a couple of the pictures from there. There's another picture from from a poem mm-hmm. um that's kind of the beginning where I'm kind of like like kind of a shadowy figure with a hat. Yep. You see all the garbage around me. That's in, also in the same place. We did a lot of shots in that in that uh abandoned church school. It makes sense. That's a great. And if people haven't checked that video out, they got to check that video out too to give them a taste of. of, yeah, of the the artistry. yeah, I'm actually so, going to start getting into doing more, doing more um, videos. Mm-hmm. I just need, I just need solid videographers that you know that charge at a rate that yep, makes that sense. But make it possible. I want to do a poem. I want to do the poem. My father's uh, you and me poem. Yes, I already talked to him about it that he would be in it. Mm-hmm. Like we kind of be like. I don't know if you ever saw um, the 30 for 30 documentary, uh, Doc and Daryl. I didn't see that one. I didn't see that one. Yeah. Well, if you ever go watch it, like they're kind of like, they they meet each other at this diner and they're talking about the past, the eighties and, you know, the drug addiction and Mm -hmm. they're just sitting there at a diner. That's why I wanted to be with my, me and my father sitting at a diner. That's dope. Drinking tea or coffee. And then the video would be part of our conversation. And then, the poem itself, harking it back through those times through the 90s, late 80s. I love and it. I mean, I'm trying, to, yeah. I'm trying to get my money together so I could upgrade my computer system because I got that camera. You know, I do the photography. I'm trying to upgrade to to, to video stuff at some point. I, I need somebody to shoot some music videos, but this this ain't my interview. But we'll talk about that another time. But um, <laughs> so, bro, I appreciate having you on. man. I think you brought a lot to the show. I think, you know, in terms of general conversation and discussing this, this art you know, work of art you did, where can people find out more about the book? Where can they get the book? Give them all the details. And I'll also post it, you know, online and whatnot. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, well, you can find uh, The World As I See It right now. It's on evoluculture.com. That's E-V-O-L-U-C-U-L-T-U-R-E.com, evoluculture.com. Right now, I'm developing a link tree uh, to attach to my social media profiles, mm-hmm. um, and I'm also going to have the books on Amazon, Etsy, and then I'm I'm in talks with Barnes and Nobles mm-hmm. about getting into their distribution chain. But right now, it's evoluculture.com, and then there'll be you know several other uh, outlets, um, and then you can just message me, you know, come to my social media profiles. Hey, I want a book. I ship the books directly. Uh, next day air. Go right to the post office. Um, and you can sell me Apple Pay, Cash App, and then next day it'll be at the post office and it'll be, at, you know, at your doorstep. Day or two after that. Dope. Yeah, and you guys can hit me up as well. And uh, I'll, I'll get in contact with Elliot for you and get him shipped out uh, and, you know, facilitate your contact with him so you can buy directly from him. So feel free to reach out to me too. It's an excellent book. Uh, I've, I've been reading it. Uh, it's, it's right on my table and it, and it's, it's really a work of art and it's well worth reading. If you're a thinking person and you enjoy good artistry, you know, and, and honestly something that is well put together with a lot of effort and, you know, an eye pun intended toward, you know, uh, a deeper meaning. So I encourage everybody to get up on it, man. And I'll be back with you guys soon to talk about, uh, you know, more news events and whatnot, but I hope you enjoyed the, the interview and and feel free to reach out to me or Elliot with anything else. He'll be back on the show. Uh, and I really appreciate appreciate you coming on, my brother. Yes, sir, man. You one of the best dudes I know, man. So, and you got a platform that's like 
Craig, you one of the more talented dudes I know. You got your hand and everything. I appreciate it. You know that, man. You know that. I try. I try, bro. But then we got some stuff coming, so everybody stay tuned. And we'll talk to yes, you uh, soon. Brother, stay stay on the line, but I'm uh, I'm going to end the show now. Tune into the other Logic and Larry stuff. Share it and, and uh, you know, stay tuned, bro. We, we are out here. I'll talk to you guys all very soon. Logic and Larry out. Love y'all.